This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, October 7th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Massive new spending has delivered persistent inflation. As interest rates sit stubbornly high, what does that mean for markets, for investment, and for the federal fiscal policy picture going forward? It was Norbert Michel and Romina Baccia evaluate both sides. Norbert, we have seen in the last few years a massive inflow of new money into the economy to accommodate a huge amount of federal spending. That gave us a good deal of inflation that has at least apparently leveled off and may be declining in the near term. The rate of inflation, that is, not inflation going down. It's not deflation. But we have also seen interest rates not behaving the way a lot of people would hope in light of a decline in inflation. That's true. And we're seeing them start to, well, they've been creeping up and now they're they're higher even at the longer end a little bit. So 10-year treasuries have even come up. Their, their rates rather have come up. So, um, you know, I think a lot of the folks who analyzed what was going on at the beginning of the pandemic thought this would maybe just be all a quick blip. Everything would get back to normal. Prices would come back down. Rates would come back down. Everything would be fine because everybody thought the Fed could just instantly fix inflation. And, you know, that's, I think most serious people would think that's a bit much uh, to expect that. You know, there are way too many things going on. And that's putting way too much faith in the Fed. And the truth is, we did, the government, we did way too much, way too much spending, way too much borrowing, along with just kind of tinkering around with the economy by shutting things down. So you get a lot of things that are unexpected. You get people's expectations that change and vary. And the the price levels, as you said, the rate of inflation has, has calmed down, but the price level remains high. And if people are looking out to argue or to plan rather what they think is going to happen over the next five, 10 years, there's less certainty. So there really shouldn't be any surprise that rates are elevated. And uh, unfortunately, you know, for the, from the fiscal side, all those low, low rates weren't locked in, uh, borrowing on, on a mostly short-term basis. And so rates go up. So the interest payments that the federal government has to make on that debt goes up. Um, and now we're seeing it even at the longer end, and you can even see it at the Federal Reserve. They're paying interest on reserves and on repos. Those rates are going up. Uh, last, I think so far this year, have spent they've paid out over a hundred billion dollars now, uh, and those are going to large banks. So, so we're also doing that. Um, and and until the rates come down, until expectations for inflation come back down, which is not something you can directly control, those rates are not going to come back down. I was about to ask, uh, what does it mean that uh, 10-year treasuries have uh, ticked up so much? What does that mean for the expectations uh, regarding inflation going forward? Well, it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem, but at least I think you could say at the moment that people are not so convinced that inflation's disappearing. So it's, it, it, it's a problem that's going to be hanging around a little bit longer. And in the sense that a lot of people expect at the very least the price level to remain elevated and they're not sure what effect that's going to have. And when it comes to borrowing money for a 10 year period, they're not so sure. 
it's wise to put millions and millions of dollars on the line with a great deal of certainty that rates are going to stay very low or go lower. So, I mean, that's, that's the gamble. And if you're in the treasury market, you're making that bet one way or the other. And right now, most people are saying, yeah, I'm not so sure that inflation is going to go away and that it's going to go right back down and that everything's fine. And if you're a would-be entrepreneur mm-hmm. who is thinking about making a big investment, you might be thinking twice about making plans for that investment if you believe that the interest uh, rate on the borrowing you might do in order to undertake that investment uh, is going to remain high for years to come. No doubt, no doubt. So if you're going to go into the market, you're going to you're going to want to be compensated a little bit more than previously for taking that risk. All right, Romina, you and I have have talked about this uh, many times in private and in public about what the uh, fiscal situation. Uh, that would be driven by a lot of these expectations. I remember uh, being a uh, naive youth in the 1990s and being told that with a few small changes, we could easily get our fiscal house in order. Um, but you, you cast the situation where we are now as uh, potentially the United States entering a debt death spiral. Yeah, debt death spiral, debt doom loop. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Doom loop. Doom yeah, loop. I mean, death spiral, <laughs> doom loop. Perhaps these it's are all are... bad. It's all bad. <laughs> um, I it seems to me that we're entering the hangover phase of the debt binge that Washington has been engaging in for far too long. The problem we see now is with the interest rate that the government has to pay on its bonds. Ticking up, we've already seen um, interest costs double. And <clears throat> with even under current optimistic projections, the um, uh, interest could be eating up about a third of all federal revenues over the next decade. So that eats up into how much money Washington has available to fund all the other government activities that they like to spend money on. And uh, healthcare costs and social security spending are rising particularly rapidly together with interest on the debt. And those three things are all very difficult to adjust or save money on, especially in the wrong, in the short term. Because with Medicare and social security, these are promises that Washington has made that are now coming due. And once people start collecting benefits, it's not just politically, but also, you know, in practical terms, very, very difficult, if not impossible, to reduce those benefits. So what you really want to do is reduce the generosity of benefits for people who are, have not yet retired, who still have the ability to adjust, work more, save more, to uh, prepare for different, different size and scope of benefits, which will be absolutely necessary. Uh, but you you can't make those changes very quickly. So n- now you're you're seeing Washington tinker on the edges of the federal budget by trying to impose spending limits on so-called discretionary spending, defense, and other domestic programs from energy and environment to grants for the arts. Uh, but even there, they've uh, they're falling short. We just barely averted a government shutdown over 
um, disagreements regarding how much to spend and by how much to break the budget. They did ultimately end up breaking the budget. So what we're seeing is that this uh, idea that Washington can just go on spending like there's no tomorrow because there was this expectation that interest rates would remain low forever. Uh, now it turns out that that was always a bad assumption. And unfortunately, now with the size and scope of the debt and the programs driving us deeper into debt, it's going to be much, much more difficult to dig out of this. So I expect that uh, we will likely see higher inflation over the long term. And any serious person with even just a mild background in finance or economics looking at our 30-year spending and debt projections uh, should be extremely concerned because the government is looking to add more than four times the amount of debt, about $120 trillion over the next 30 years, than it added over its entire history. We, we've borrowed about $26 trillion up until now, which is as much, much as the entire GDP of the country. I would argue that's already too big, but we're looking to borrow more than four times that. And I seriously question who's going to lend that money to the United States and it, how much is that going to cost us? And is this not going to motivate um, Washington to try and deflate the currency and monetize some of this debt as it becomes a uh, too costly to service it, you know, with the current value of the dollar. It 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 is a an odd situation, and and you know, on various occasions, again, you and I have discussed what a small change in the price of borrowing would do to the amount of federal revenue that would have to be devoted to paying interest on debt for many years uh, into the future. Yeah, I mean, just just one percentage point increase in uh, in the interest rate uh, will cost us about three additional trillion in in spending on interest over the next ten years. And if that additional percentage point persists over that thirty year period, we're looking at spending an additional thirty trillion more than what Washington is already pro- projecting. Now, related to what Norbert uh, was talking about, you know, to the extent that interest rates remain high, that makes it more difficult for the U.S. to grow its way out of this kind of problem. Yes, also in part because the programs that are the key drivers of growing spending and therefore debt, Medicare and Social Security are either indexed to measures that grow with the economy or have shown a long-run tendency to actually uh, outgrow economic growth. So in the case of Social Security, one tweak that I've been writing about um, is to adjust the initial benefit formula when people first apply for benefits to uh, grow with prices so that you maintain the current value of Social Security benefits and uh, you protect them against inflation by indexing them to uh, the the growth in, in, in prices. Instead, what we have is uh, we index initial benefits to wage growth, which tends to grow faster than prices. And that's that's causing most of the funding shortfall in the future. The Social Security trustees modeled this change. If we shifted to adjusting initial benefits for prices instead of wages, the um, we would we would we would have surpluses in the long term in the Social Security program where we could cut people's taxes down the road or allow people to save more in private accounts that they own and control 
Um, and this is a change where you don't actually have to cut anyone's benefits. You are just saying, let's not make them more generous than they already are. Let's protect the current benefit against inflation. But you're not getting more and more money each and every year because we adopted a bad indexing formula. And then with Medicare, it's been growing at about one percentage point faster than the economy for quite some time with a with a short uh, reduction in Medicare spending since the Medicare sequester was adopted in 2011. But that's been waived so many times now that I don't think we can uh, rely on on that reduced Medicare spending growth to tie us over. Norbert, uh, Romina's laid out a pretty uh, grim <laughs> set of uh, uh, potentialities for the fiscal picture uh, going forward. Is there anything that the Fed could or ought to do in order to make that kind of continued expansion of government over and above the growth of the economy to make that more difficult? Well. There are things that the Fed could do. I would argue that those are things that they should not do. However, none of the options are good. You know, they could, for example, uh, they could institute a deflation. <laughs> that's, that's, that would be painful. Very painful. Um, they could continue to try to monetize more and more debt to roll over the debt to pay off the debt, you know, new debt to pay off the existing debt. It's a, in the credit card world, they call that a balance transfer. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and, and in international finance, they call that inflationary. <laughs> so, I mean, that, so, so neither of those options is really great. Um, you know, I think it's the, the important thing to fix all of this is to get, when we get out of this is to realize, you know, this is what we're seeing right now coming out of this crisis. You know, it's it's a reason to have a limited government in the first place. It's a reason not to be borrowing so much uh, and spending so much in the first place, because when you do have a real crisis, that something that necessitates a, a burst in borrowing or spending, you know, if your budget's starting off at zero, that's one thing. But if you're already in the red by a lot, you know, you're playing this dangerous game. And that's really where we are right now. And now you're really backed into a corner. Anything to add, Romina, or we're going to leave on that grim note? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've just been thinking about how do we get out of that corner? And I don't think we should rely on the Federal Reserve. I think this is fundamentally a political problem and one that needs to be fixed by Congress and the administration. And I was hopeful when I saw some conversations about adding a bipartisan fiscal commission to the latest attempt to you know, keep the government funded and avoid a government shutdown. Uh, that bill, which was introduced by Representative Heizinga, who's the co-chair of the so-called Bipartisan Fiscal Forum or BFF group, didn't end up making it onto the final continuing resolution that passed over the weekend. But I know that there is some serious discussion and thinking going on in Congress and outside for the need of for a fiscal commission and what that should look like in order to reform Medicare, Social Security, these very politically tricky programs that Congress has ignored for too long and allowed to grow out of control on autopilot and to rein those back in. And uh, I, I think that we will need the help of such a commission and that it should be independent to give Congress that political cover and that it should also have 
the mechanism that the successful base realignment and closure commission had, so-called BRAC, where um, Congress didn't have to take an up or down vote, uh, only the president did so, and then the commission recommendations would ex- would self-execute uh, once the clock ran out on Congress uh, rejecting the proposal. And I think that's what we'll need, that kind of political cover and that kind of an, an, an institution that can put politics aside and do what's necessary and, and inevitable if we, if we're trying to avoid a fiscal crisis. It's just everything else is tinkering around the edges. I, I may have mentioned this on, on, on this podcast before. 95% of unfunded obligations are due to Medicare and Social Security. So if you don't address these programs, really not much else matters when it comes to trying to rein in the federal budget. It matters for other reasons, to cut wasteful government spending, ineffective government programs, to devolve responsibilities the federal government has usurped back to the entities where those issues are best handled, like the private sector, state and local governments. There's a lot of reasons to cut government that are good, but when it comes to avoiding a fiscal crisis, if you don't reform Medicare and Social Security, you're not you're not even trying. Ramina Bacha directs budget and entitlement policy at the Cato Institute, where Norbert Michel directs the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening. 